If you would like to turn your Bibles to Second Kings 2. Your chariot awaits is the title which we're looking at this passage this evening. And as I was preparing this passage, the question that came to my mind, and really which will override most of what I'm saying tonight, is what was the significance of the horses and the chariots of fire in bringing Elijah to heaven? What is God teaching us through such an amazing miracle? What have we to learn from this event, which in many ways is unequaled? Well, I think there are a number of things, and I hope there are things that will really encourage us this evening. And the first thing is that God's cause brings victory. Remember Jezebel, and remember what had been her threat against Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, just after Caramel and after the death of the prophets of Baal, this is what Jezebel had said to Elijah. 1 Kings 19 and 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that's the prophets of Baal, by this time tomorrow. And that really terrified Elijah. He ran for his life. He really feared that Jezebel would be the one responsible for his death. But what the chariots of fire and the horses of fire taking him to heaven teach us is that he did not die by the hand of Jezebel. Her promise to kill him like the prophets of Baal had been killed, her promise failed. Her cause was defeated, whereas the Lord's purposes are being victorious. The chariots of fire taking Elijah show that she had been defeated. The Lord was the one who was on the victory side, and Elijah, with such an amazing procession to heaven, was sharing in that victory. I don't know if you watched the changing of the guard or tripping the colors yesterday or the great ceremonies at the coronation of the king. Absolutely great splendor. Uh, I was listening, I think it was something Radio Walster, they're interviewing some people and uh, they're, they're interviewing a man, I think he's involved in plays from the uh, Coal Island area, he was a nationalist and he says the one thing you have to do is this, the Brits do pomp and ceremony like no one else. Uh, they're in a league of their own. He had to conf- confess that. But that was nothing, absolutely nothing, compared to the splendor of this procession. Uh, I think often we think it's one chariot and maybe one or two horses. It's the plural, chariots and horses of fire. It was such an amazing procession. But what's the significance of all this? Can you think of a, another occasion in which horses and chariots of fire are spoken of in the Old Testament? In the same book that we're reading here this evening, in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verses 16 to 17, there we have the, the story of Elisha. And Elisha was really annoying the king of Syria because every time the king of Syria had a plan to defeat Israel, Elisha told the king of Israel what the plan was. 
God revealed it to him. And so the king of Syria was getting furious and decides he wants to take Elisha out. So he sends horses and chariots to capture Elisha at the city of Dothan. And in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up. He looks out. He's terrified when he sees these chariots and these horses sent from the king of Syria. And in 2 Kings 6 and verse 16, we read this. He, that is Elisha, said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, in Elijah and Elisha's day, horses and chariots were the main weapons of the earthly kings. But what we see here is, and with this display of these horses and chariots of fire, God is basically saying, you earthly things think you have some strength, you think you have some power, you have nothing compared to me. These were the heavenly weapons that the Lord was using in Elisha's case in order to protect him. And Elijah, in being taken to heaven by these horses and chariots of fire, which were the, the Lord's weapons of war, it was speaking of power, of strength, of victory. And you know, you think of how we can get down and despondent. But as God's people, we need to be aware of the resources of heaven that are available to us. And what we are to do in our churches, in our own lives, is to fight not with human weapons. Because when we compare ourselves to the world and try to use the world's weapons, let's face it, they can use their weapons better than we can. What we have to do is to turn to the spiritual weapons which God has given to us, as outlined in Ephesians 6. The weapons of faith, truth, salvation, righteousness, the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer without ceasing. And when we use those weapons, Christ's power is released among us. Christ's power comes down and fights on our behalf. The power of heaven comes down and enters into the battle when we use the weapons of God. Now you think of this. You think of Elijah. He's been taken to heaven victoriously in this show of power and strength from the Lord. That is a far cry from the Elijah we saw a few weeks ago who was in despair in the desert, who had run for his life and who was wanting to die under the broom tree. Elijah at that time, he needed a fresh vision of God. He needed to go to Mount Horeb and as a result of his time at Horeb, he was restored he was equipped to go on, and now he is ascending to heaven victoriously. Ascending to heaven in a way that no other prophet or servant of God in the Old Testament ever would. And of course, I think this points us to Jesus. It points to how Jesus turns us around and the, the victory that he brings to us. We think of how 
Jesus, at this time of death, uh, the disciples, they were absolutely a defeated bunch. They were in despair. They were in the upper room that Sunday. The door locked out of fear of the Jews. The cause of God, the cause of Christ, as far as they were concerned, was over. It was lost. They were defeated. But then Jesus, the resurrected Christ, comes among them. They have a fresh vision of God. They have a fresh vision of what God is doing. Christ lived among them for 40 days and then ascended to glory to the right hand of the Father. He ascended to glory in power, in victory, to reign on behalf of his people. In a sense, this is the whole message of the Bible. This is the message to encourage us. Whether we look at Elijah, we look at Jesus, it's the message of, yes, the times God's people look defeated. Yes, at times God's people are weak, but there is power from heaven who can turn around our situations of need into glorious victory. Roger Ellsworth, in his book on Elijah, says this, We live in a time very much like Elijah's. A time in which the cause of God is being fiercely attacked on every side. Such a time always causes some professing Christians completely to abandon their profession. Others begin to renegotiate their faith and seek to make room for the popular beliefs of the day within the framework of Christianity. Still others continue to hold to historic Christianity, but do so with a great deal of melancholy and with very little zeal. The story of Elijah is tremendously encouraging for all Christians who find themselves depressed and despondent with the future of the cause of God. What is your vision today? Is your vision a bit like Elijah when he was in the desert wanting to die in absolute despair, thinking that all was defeated? Or have you, are you getting a fresh vision of the Elijah who goes to glory, who goes in these chariots and horses of fire in a parade of victory? Is your vision of Christ a vision of just a Christ who dies on the cross of Calvary? Or is your vision of Christ the Christ who is resurrected, the Christ who has ascended, the Christ who is ruling and reigning on behalf of his people? When we have a proper vision of Christ, of where Christ is now, there's no place for a defeatist attitude. God's cause brings victory. What a wonderful encouragement that is. And then secondly, we see here that God's cause brings glory. There is no doubt that the chariots of fire also speak something of the glory of heaven. These chariots of fire were not of earthly origin. A bit of the, the majesty, the wonder, the glory of heaven is breaking through to earth as Elijah is then taken to heaven. Elijah was leaving behind the suffering and the trials of this world. He was going for a glory in the presence of God, which is beyond description. Think of the words of Paul in Romans 8 and verse 18. 
He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. The sufferings of this present time, and Paul knew a lot about suffering. He says they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we enter glory, all the trials will be forgotten. We will be consumed with the majesty of the Lord. In Revelation 7, familiar words from verse 13, it puts us this way. John's vision of heaven. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? From where have they come? I said, I'm sure you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear. The suffering, the trial is left behind. And John continues this theme in Revelation 22. And in the first few verses of Revelation 22, he says this here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Christ is on the throne. Christ is reigning. His people are there around the throne. His people are reigning with him. Victory and glory. Or think the way Paul put it in Philippians 1. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Do we really believe those words? To die is gain. Do we desire to depart and be with Christ? For that is far better. Have we had a proper vision of the glory that God has prepared for his people? For the faithful believer, for the believer who has served the Lord, there awaits these wonderful words from Matthew 25. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What a tremendous encouragement this is. What an encouragement to persevere when the going is tough. That one day we will leave behind the struggles and the trials and every tear. And we'll enter glory. 
have a joy beyond words. I don't know about you, but heaven excites me. The glory to come thrills me. But the thing that worries me is getting there. It's the process. It's the, the dying bit, I think, is a nerve-wracking bit for me. I think death is something we don't know what it'll be like, and it's, it's something that's disconcerting. Is there anything from this story that can really encourage us as we think of the process of death? Well, we can see that for Elijah, going to glory was, was majestic. It was wonderful. It was victorious. But I think there's something else there. These horses and chariots of fire, this was a heavenly army. These were led, it's generally believed, you look at the story of Elisha and the vision, these were the angels of God involved in this. And the thing about Elijah going to heaven was he wasn't going by himself. The angels of God were bringing him. Angels of love and goodness and perfection. Do you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar? And Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, a way of speaking of going to heavenly glory. Do you remember how it says he got there? The angels brought him to heavenly glory. And I think it's a wonderful thought that, yes, death is unknown. And the unknown is a bit scary. But here's a wonderful truth that it is the angels of God who come and take us to glory. We never die alone when we're in Christ. His angels are there ministering, serving, taking us to heaven. But just before I leave this second point, another wee question I have here is, why was this tremendous privilege given to Elijah of him not dying but being wished to glory in this amazing way without suffering death? Why did Elijah get this? And we don't have a record of anyone else getting this. Yes, we do have a record of Enoch going to heaven without dying, but even Enoch didn't get the chariots of fire and horses, the, the horses of fire. Why did Elijah get this? i thinking about that. And the best answer I can come up with is, it's just down to God's wonderful grace. It's just grace. It's God doing for Elijah what he didn't deserve. And Elijah's been taken to glory is a picture of grace to encourage us that when we die, 
What takes over when we're in Christ is entirely of grace. It's not about what we deserve. It's entirely of the grace that comes through Jesus. The Lord is saying to us through what happened to Elijah, dear Christian, don't fear death. Don't fear the process of death. Because, dear Christian, as you die, it's my grace that carries you through. God's cause leads to glory. And then finally, God's cause continues. Remember going back to Elijah in the desert, I'm in despair. And then at Mount Horeb at the beginning, his cry was, he was the last one. No one else was faithful but him. There was no one else to continue the cause. And by God's mercy, Elijah lived on to see that this was not the case. And this is not the case, first of all, in the sons of the prophet that we read about in verses 3, 5, and 7. These sons of the prophet, this appears to be a school of, for young men to train them in the word of God. And one of these groups had 50 in it. Well, there's one group in Bethel, another group in Jericho. Elijah, before he left this world, is being reminded the work is going on. You're not indispensable, Elijah. My cause is going to flourish. And Elijah, you can see in these men, my cause is going to continue and to grow. And what is Elijah's response before he leaves this world? He wants to greet these men one final time in order to support and encourage them for their task ahead. These men would be used to continue to share God's truth. And Elijah wants one final opportunity to help prepare them, to help prepare the next generation to serve the Lord in the work of his word. And you know, surely that's always our task, to pass it on to the next generation. Our goal with our children, our goal with our young people is never entertainment. Yes, hopefully some of the things we do with them are entertaining and are fun. But behind all we do, our goal is to equip them to prepare them to be servants, to prepare them to be soldiers, to prepare them for the ministry of the Word in many different contexts. We need to have a passion not to feed the selfishness of young hearts, but we have to have a passion that by God's grace, young hearts will be molded into the likeness of Christ to continue His work. And isn't what Jesus sent his spirit for? So that his work would continue through generation after generation after generation. So the cause continues through these sons of the prophets. But also the cause continues through Elisha, his powerful successor. And Elisha, we see, was a man of tremendous dedication. If you look there in verse 2, just as one example... 
And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And that's repeated in verse 4. It's repeated in verse 6. Elisha was not going to leave this man of God. Elisha was devoted to Elijah because he was God's servant doing God's work. And he felt if he left Elijah, he was letting the Lord down. He felt if he left Elijah, he was going to lose out in some way. What a commitment to the prophet of the word. And I wonder... How often have you, how often have I missed out on some blessing from the Lord because we neglected a meeting that we could and should have been at or neglected a time of Bible study and prayer in our own homes that we should have taken the time to do. You see, imagine if Elisha when he was first tested at Bethel, said, okay, Elijah, you go on, I'll stay here. Elisha would have missed the wonderful miracle at the Jordan as Elijah divided the water too. He would have missed the wonderful display of victory as Elijah's taking into heaven as the horses and chariots of fire. He would have missed getting his cloak. He would have missed them being able to do the miracle of dividing the Jordan himself with the power of God. You see what he would have missed out on? How much do we maybe miss out? Because we're careless in our commitment to the Word of God. But Elisha's faithfulness, it receives this wonderful promise here in verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. As I said to the kids, the double portion was the inheritance of the eldest son. Elisha is saying that spiritually, spiritually he sees himself as Elijah's son. He sees himself as Elijah's successor, the one to inherit his role. And so that's his longing. Oh, to have the power that Elijah had in his own life. D.L. Moody, as a young man in a prayer meeting, heard a man pray, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man totally devoted to him. And Moody says, I want to be that man. What is your passion? What is your ambition in regards to the spiritual things of God? The condition is placed on Elisha that he has to be there when Elijah departs. He has to be there to receive, in a sense, the mantle, the cloak. This is a continued testing of Elisha's commitment. Do you understand this? That we are being tested. That evening when we're tired 
and we could go to the midweek and decide not to, or could go to the prayer meeting, or could go to the evening service and decide not, we're being tested. The Lord is wanting us to show how committed we are to him and to his word. Now, Elisha's reaction to Elijah's departure is very striking. Look at verse 12. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw them no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. I was basically uh, tearing a back on his old life. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And then we see in verse 14, he goes to the Jordan, he uses the cloak, and is able to do the very same miracle that Elijah has done before. Are you envious of Elisha? Would you have wanted to be there, to have that cloak fall so that you could have it, so that you'd be able to have that amazing power in your life? The wonderful thing is that in Jesus we're offered so much more. So much more. Because we are offered not the cloak of Elijah, who is of like nature as us. What the gospel offers, what the gospel delivers, is being clothed with the very clothes of Christ. And to have the power of Christ living in our lives. I hope you see what Christianity is. It's not about ritual. Christianity is about Christ. It's about his power, his victory being let loose in our lives. I think just far too often we're in the shallows when the Lord wants us to go deeper with him. But if we're going to go deeper, we need to have that commitment of Elisha that we're not going to be distracted. We're not going to fall back. We're going to be stay tight to Jesus. Stay close to Christ. Not leave him. And then to know his power coming into our lives. But I think there's a challenge here in that do we really want this? Do you really want the victorious, transforming power of Jesus let loose in your life? Or are you just comfortable with where you're at now? Surely Jesus has died and risen from the grave and ascended to glory to give us so much more to let his power loose in us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And Father, just thank you that this word tonight just speaks of the victory, of the, the wonder, of the glory that is there for your people that's been achieved by Christ. 
And Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy to your servant Elijah, someone who had messed up, someone who had failed, but someone who had been restored and ended the journey victoriously. Oh, Lord, help us to be like that. And Lord, each of us here who are believers tonight, no matter how long the rest of our journey here is on earth, may it be lived in the victorious power of Jesus. Oh, Father, may we truly be open to all that you have to bring to us. Oh, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.